Amen. Amen. Thanks, honey. Morning, everybody. We're continuing along in our What If series, and don't worry if you're not actually a part of that, like you haven't been tracking with us since we started, it doesn't matter. All of these messages can kind of stand alone, and I believe there'll be something in it for you as well. But anyway, we're up to the week three out of our four-week series, and today we're looking at the idea of what if. You know, it's the old, uh, it's the old question, you know, if you knew you know, you could do anything for God and you couldn't fail, uh, and there were certainly no restrictions on what you could do, what is it, what you can do? It's like tapping into that, what if you could do anything? Or looking at a situation or a circumstance and going, saying to ourselves, what if that could actually be different? And... Um, one of the, 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 uh, the, the premise of this particular one is that our dreams and our visions, and I, I guess you could have like our strong desires or, or whatever, all begin with a what if, you know, in our minds or in our, in our spirit. But for a lot of us, it never progresses beyond that. And like I was saying in our vision week a few weeks ago, you know, um, any dream, any vision, any desire, be it a, a one you have personally or, or, or us collectively, that, that doesn't progress to action is nothing more than an intention. And intentions accomplish what? Nothing. nothing. Okay? So it doesn't matter how great your dream is. It doesn't matter how wonderful your vision is. It doesn't matter how strong your goal or your desire is. If it doesn't translate into action, if you don't take that what if that's in your head and your heart and start to actually pursue that, it actually accomplishes nothing. And a lot of us struggle with progressing that thing. So the question for me that I began to ask myself as I looked is, what is it that stops us? What is it that stops us from taking that what if that's in our head and our heart and translating it into a reality? Now, beyond the really obvious one that we discussed a few weeks ago about our fear of failure, which is a big one for all of us, yeah? A lot of the times we just don't do it because we're just simply afraid that it's not going to happen and we're going to be left looking a little bit foolish. Beyond the fear of failure, what is it that stops us going after that thing that we can see could be and probably know in our hearts even should be? What stops us making our what-if a reality? So as I say, I was thinking about that and I came up with a couple of things that today I think they, they may resonate with you or they may not. So it's a case of if, they, if the hat fits, wear it. If not, just affirm that it was a brilliant point and congratulate me. <laughs> later, um, even if it was for other people, okay? So, what is it that stops us? I think the first one is a very simple one. It's, for many of us, we, we balk, uh, we get immobilised for fear of doing the wrong thing, fear of getting it wrong. I think part of our reluctance to act on our what-ifs is our fear that we are going to get outside of what God wants us to do. I mean, how do I know if my good idea is a God idea, how do I tell the difference? Well, the short answer to that question is you don't. Okay? You don't. And I'll back that up with a second point. I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. I think that our God ideas are actually good ideas, and I think that that good idea that you have is more often than not a God idea, and I'll unpack that in a little, in a little uh, time. But most of us don't step out and take the big faith step that makes our what-ifs a reality because we don't know if it's exactly the thing that we're meant to do and we do not want to get it wrong. For many of us in our minds, we kind of think that God has like our life prescribed and detailed down to the nth degree, okay, and that there is this right thing for us to do and it is up to us 
to discern and to discover what that exact thing is that God has prepared for us to do and to do that because we don't want to get it wrong. And you know what I'm talking about when I, when I say that? You know, now, and I know that that differs to the levels. I mean, in our last church, for example, there was a person who legitimately said to me, you know, before I even get out of bed in the morning, I pray and I ask God what socks I need to put on. Clean ones is the answer. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And I just thought, what an onerous way to, to live, you know. Um, just absolutely ludicrous. Do you think that within the scheme of what is all of time and history uh, of creation, that the socks you wear matter to God? Right, okay. So we agree that we don't go down to that level, but... Let's, let's, but, but when it gets to some of the bigger ticket items in life, we do take, you know, which job should I take, where should I live, who should I marry, those type of things. We kind of get in a mindset that there is, there is kind of this one right thing amongst all of the options available to us, and it is up to us to actually find out what that is. Now, I'm not going to get into a discussion about the tension between the sovereignty of God and free will today. That will just exhaust all of us and no one will be happy. But I'm happy to talk about it later. If you feel that maybe I've said something that you don't agree with, let's have a discussion about that. Don't just call me a heretic, okay? All right. So you know what I'm talking about. We had an elders retreat a a couple of weeks ago and um, we outlined our vision for the next five to ten years and all the things that we want to accomplish and how we're going to get there and now we're breaking it down into yearly goals so the detail is getting more and more and more. And and when you think about it, this is just for us, a local church in Sydney in this time and place. Now just by way of comparison, let me compare that to Jesus' plan for the entire restoration of all creation. It's an easy one because you know it, it's found in Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And behold, I am with you even until the end of the age. Okay? So, what's Jesus' plan for the entire restoration of all creation? Go. Where? Into all the world. And do what? Make disciples. By when? The end of the age. You take our detailed plan and you compare it to the one that Jesus outlines, okay, for the restoration of all creation. And you will note the lack of detail in his plan. He doesn't tell us exactly how we're meant to do that. He doesn't determine or define for us the ways or the means that are at our disposal in order to be able to do that. It is blatantly lacking in detail. Why is that? Because he leaves it up to us to determine how we go about doing that. I don't think, and I mean this quite sincerely, I don't think that he has the one way that we can do this stuff. I really don't think that he he does that at all. Okay, he keeps it really broad and non-specific. And there's a couple of things I want to say about this whole thing. The first is this, that Jesus does not give us a plan. He gives us a purpose, right? He gives us a purpose, and the purpose is go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, all right? The purpose for us as a church is to see the kingdom come and to see people come into a life-changing, growing relationship with Jesus, right? That's why we do what we do, all right? 
How we achieve that, I honestly believe, is up to us. How we achieve that is up to us. Provided it is not immoral or illegal or unethical, it's entirely up to us how we want to do that. See, so many of us think that the will of God is a tightrope, right? You've probably heard me say this before. That it is this very narrow cable that we have to walk along and that we could very easily fall off if we make the wrong decision, even if our motivation is honourable to do God's will and to, to fulfil the purpose that he's given us, okay? It's like God has this very precise and very prescribed list of things he has for us to do, and it is our job to find out what they are. And we usually, have you noticed, we usually can only determine whether or not we've walked that tightrope in retrospect, in that it worked, it came off, as if that's a sign of anything. Because, because the, the, the opposite is also true. If we go down a particular path or we make a particular decision and it doesn't work, does that mean that that wasn't in the will of God? I remember someone saying to me a long time ago when I first started working out at Seven Hills, right? Well, if it doesn't work, well, no, it wasn't the right thing to do. Oh, okay, well, we'll, we'll just take that philosophy and apply it everywhere. If my doctor said that to me, I'd be very upset. Doesn't work. We just know you weren't meant to be alive. I'm meant to be you. You know, no. Sometimes things fail because we're crap at what we do, and we've got to do better. Yes? yes. Right. Thank you. Good. Okay. I don't think that the will of God is actually a tightrope. I think the will of God is more an open field, a big, expansive space where we've got room to manoeuvre, and there are multiple options for how we traverse it where we have the permission and the latitude to use the brains and creativity he has endowed us with in the pursuit of fulfilling his purpose and will for all of creation. You know, one of the other particular problems we have in this, and again, I'm not going down this road, but part of the reason we get hung up on this is because we have so highly individualised the salvation story that we do think it is that particular Whereas if you read the scripture, even particularly Romans 8, which we're reading through now, we tend to read through the lens of personal salvation. It's not a personal salvation story. It's an all of creation restoration story. Okay? But we particularise it and individualise it so much that everything becomes about us and God's will for us. It's God's will for all of creation. And we are a part of that. And within, this, within the, the parameters of fulfilling that that goal of his to see all of creation restored, we have a lot of latitude to use the creativity and the brains that he has to be able to act, he has given us to be able to accomplish that. So should this church have started Rhythms or the Restore as it is now all those years ago, was it the right thing to do? Yes. Why? Not because of the success that it's having now, but because of the intention behind it. The intention was to create a space out there where we could actually bring the kingdom and reach people for Jesus, right? The rationale itself was proof that it was within the will of God, yes? Okay, you're tracking with me or is this getting too hard? Okay, good, all right, I don't want to confuse you, I know it's early. Okay, <clears throat> Okay. was it the best anyone could have said at the time when it came time to, to thinking about whether or not we should do that was it seems like the right thing to do. And sometimes that's the best we can offer. And if you think I'm overstating that, just as an aside, there's just this, I, no, I've brought this up before, there's this little story in Acts 15 where 
it's the first council of Jerusalem. So the first council kind of like the, the church has had since its formation, um, being run by the apostles. And the issue that's come up is all these Gentiles are now becoming Christians. And there's a whole bunch of ex-Jewish people saying, well, if they're going to become Christians, they've got to be circumcised, they've got to obey the law of Moses, da 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 So the question becomes, what's a Christian? How do you define a Christian? Do they have to become Jewish in order to become Christian? Do they have to follow these customs? What is a Christian? You, would you agree that's a big issue? I mean, these are the apostles defining what a Christian is for time immemorial, right? Big issue. They have a discussion, they have a debate, they come back, and you know what James says? It seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit not to put anything on you beyond this. You notice that word that he used? Seemed? It's like if there was only the one right option out of multiple options that God determined this is what it is, then he should have been really precise about that, but he didn't. He said, look... To the best of our knowledge, to the best of our ability, we think this is the best way forward. Okay? And sometimes that's the best that we can come up with. So how do I know that our vision for the next five, ten years is within the will of God? Well, you know what? I don't. Not in the way that we understand that. I don't know that it is within the will of God. I don't, but I do know that our intention is to see the kingdom come and to see more people brought into a life-transforming relationship with Jesus and to see them go and make the world a better place too. That's why we're doing what we're doing. It's not what we're doing, it's why we're doing it. And we're doing it to go into all the world and, and make disciples of all nations. So ultimately, if the best, as I can say, is it seems like it's the right thing to do, sometimes that's the best that we can do. What matters isn't the what, but the why. We're going for this because we want to see the kingdom come, and it's the same for our dreams and our visions. You know, if our, if our desire is to honour God, if it's to see the kingdom come, if it's to make this world a better place, then I think we can safely conclude, right, that this is within, broadly speaking, the will of God. And we don't need to second-guess ourselves on that. You know, if I thought a clown school or a roller disco would achieve the same end, I would do that. I don't. What's that? Now you're talking. Now we're talking. Some people are really interested in the clown school, aren't they? No, I'm serious. The means, as I say, as long as it's not immoral, legal, or unethical, is almost immaterial. It is the end that is important. The other thing I want to say about this is Jesus doesn't give us a plan, he gives us a person. Jesus finishes a great commission by saying, Behold, I'm with you even till the end of the age. Now that would have had real resonance for them because he'd spent a lot of time in the lead up to that, his death and resurrection preparing them for this eventuality and explaining to them what this was actually going to mean. And if you read through John 14 through to 17, Jesus goes into a lot of detail about this. But essentially, he sits down with his disciples and he says to them, listen, I'm going away. And of course, their reaction is, that's not a good thing. He says, no, it's good, it's better. It's better for you that I go away. Why? Because when I do, then I will send the comforter, the counsellor, the Holy Spirit to you. I have been with you, but then I will be in you. So there was going to be this transfer of the locus of, 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 of Jesus from this exterior uh, to the interior. Jesus was no longer going to be uh, you know, um, uh, restricted to just one time and place. He was going to be able, be able with all his people all the time. There was going to be this transition that was going to occur. So Jesus talked his disciples through that. And he said, we haven't been left to our own devices to muddle through life and to muddle through the decisions we need to make simply to come up with the best that we can come up with. We have the Holy Spirit. We have God himself who lives within us and empowers us and guides us. That's why good ideas are God ideas and why God ideas are good ideas because our ideas are coming from the same place. 
the Holy Spirit who lives within us, who's generating this stuff. Look at Romans 8, 26 and 27. It says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Now, now obviously, Paul is talking about prayer here. When we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit grabs hold of us and begins to intercede for us in accordance with the will of God. But that holds true for direction. If we change, if we don't know what we ought to pray for to we don't know what we ought to do, the same principle applies. That same Holy Spirit who helps us pray when we lack the words is the one who helps us think and be creative and formulate ideas when we're not entirely sure about what we should do. Yeah? Are we tracking with that? Okay? That's why we can trust that these good ideas that we have are probably God ideas and not just something we came up with after eating pizza at late at night. Okay? So when I sit with our pastors and our elders and we talk about the future and what we'd like to do and where we'd like to go and how we'd like to get there, I know that God is in those conversations because we are in those conversations and he is in us. Yeah? So he's intimately involved in that thinking and that creativity and those promptings and those leadings and those ideas. Look, let's be, to be honest, I don't think I'm clever enough to come up with some of the things that we come up with. I'm just not that bright, okay? So it's true. It's true, what the front row affirmed. Um, <laughs> I'm just not that bright. You know, it, but time spent sitting and listening and going, you know, this is our heart, God. We want to see people come to know Jesus. We want to see lives changed. We want to see communities transformed. Then we start getting these ideas. I believe it's because God is at work in us, birthing those ideas. Not because they're the only thing to do or the necessarily the right thing to do, but you know what? They're things that we can do. That's it. And, and so it's the same with you guys and personally about your dreams and your visions and stuff like that. What, what I want to say to you in the morning, what if, right, what if we stopped worrying about getting it wrong? What if we, what if we just stopped worrying that, that oh, ooh, I don't know if I've got it right? Put that thought out of your mind. What if we stop worrying that we've got it wrong? What if we stop thinking that there is a difference between a good idea and a good idea? What if we stopped being frozen to the spot with fear, okay? And what if we just had the faith to believe that God only has not only created us with the capacity to think creatively and to come up with things, but he's intimately involved in helping us do that as well? What if that was our basic assumption, that when we had an idea, oh, that's probably the wrong one. No, that's probably the right one because my intention is to do what God wants me to do and I'm open to listening to what he's got to say, yes? So let's start with that as an assumption. That's my biggest point, I might add, so don't think like everything that goes from here is uh, going to be as long. Second one is this. What if we stop worrying about doing it for the wrong reason? So one is that we're worried about doing the wrong thing. The other thing that stops us sometimes is we are worried that we are doing it for all the wrong reasons. Sometimes that is what freezes us. Okay, I mean, what, what, if I'm, what if I'm doing it to get noticed? What if I'm doing it to make a name for myself? What if I'm doing it to compete with the church down the road? What if I'm doing it because I'm afraid of being alone? You know, what, what, what if, what if, what if, what if? Do you understand what I'm talking about? We, we doubt ourselves. We doubt our motivation. And, you know, it is a good thing to check, our, check ourselves. It's a good thing to run that through, okay? I have no problems with that at all because we can be a bit of a mixed bag from time to time with our motivations. We have to accept that reality. But I think if there's any ounce of self-awareness about most of us, we're pretty quick to pick up on that stuff, yeah? 
I think we're pretty honest with ourselves sometimes to realise, yeah, I'm not so sure that my motivation is actually pure, all right? That's the healthy way of doing that. The unhealthy instinct that we often have, though, is to have this kind of reflexive mistrust and suspicion of all our motives all the time. And, and some of us go down that road. We are just suspicious and distrustful of our motivation all the time. And to be true, to be honest, it's kind of a truth that we have an idea or a feeling we have imbibed through sitting in church. Uh, I, when I sat down and I thought about this, I thought, where does this sort of come from? I remember when I first became a Christian, I was doing memory verses. One of the first memory verses I was given was Jeremiah 17.9. You all know that, right? Because you all do scripture memory. So you know what I'm talking about, yeah? So just knowingly go, yeah. Like, <laughs> yes! Who's that? Sharon. See, Sharon's. Yeah. Oh, it's a, real, it's a real heartwarmer, this one. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? In other words, don't trust yourself. You know, don't trust yourself. You're rotten to the core, okay? Why do we mistrust our motives? Oh, I don't know, because I've been told that, okay? There's more where that came from. Oh, what a sinful man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? That's, mm, yeah. The flesh is only set on what the carnal man desires. You know, this idea is right through the warp and woof of Scripture. The idea being that in our fallen human state, okay, we always bend towards kind of the worst impulses of humankind, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I've no idea with that. That is true. Without the transforming love and grace of God, our default setting is off. But, and here's the but, if you've met Jesus, okay, you're not in that state anymore. That's the reality we need to get our minds around, okay? That same prophet, Jeremiah, who said our heart's so sick and beyond cure and no one can understand it, later on goes to say, but there is a day coming where God is going to take these hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh, where no longer is his law going to be written externally to us. It's actually going to be written on our hearts. Guess what? It's that day. We live in that day, okay? So we are, we are not these people with with notoriously uh, deceptive hearts who are trying to do the will of God. We're people with new hearts, with the law of God written on our hearts. That's who we are. That's us. We're not the former thing, we're the latter thing, okay? It's that day. The old me couldn't be trusted, but good news, I'm not the old me anymore. And getting our heads around that is going to be really important. You know, we use the language of transformation. We use the language of new creation. We use talk about the new self. We get the theory. But if you notice that operationally in our lived realities, how easy it is us to believe that the old me still has more influence than the new me. Yeah? That we almost define and think about ourselves almost solely in terms of the bad parts about us rather than the true new parts about us. You know, we give more, and it's, and it's like, you know, sometimes the stuff with spiritual warfare too. We're so convinced of, of Satan's ability to be able to deceive and do bad things, not of God's capacity to be able to trump that any day of the week. You know? So we, we act and we talk as if, like, this old me is still so alive and active and holds sway. And the reality is exactly the opposite it's the new us that is very much alive. The old me is dead. Sometimes it needs to lie down, right? But it's dead. The new me, the new heart, the new creation, all of that is more true than the old stuff. Okay? Far more true than the old stuff. God says, you know, we are new creations, that we have new hearts and we have the mind of Christ. This, this, this inherent mistrust of ourselves 
pastors for some sort of weird kind of humility. You know, that's what it does. Because in church, we want to be humble, don't we? And, and our definition of humble is actually probably thinking the worst of ourselves. So we don't get a big head and we don't get ahead of ourselves. But that's not what true humility is. Humility comes from the Latin word humus, which means ground. So to be, to be humble means to be grounded. And like Jake was saying last week, we need to be grounded in who God says we are. We need to be grounded in the word of God and who he says we are, not who we think we are, not who anyone else says we are. True humility is being grounded in who God says we are. And God says you are a new creation. You have a new heart. You have the mind of Christ. You are being transformed and conformed into the image of Jesus. That's what God says about you. So yes, sometimes we can be a mixed bag in terms of our motivation. That potential always exists. But I think instead of worrying that that that's our first port of call, instead of assuming that everything that we want to do is coming from a bad place, assume that it's coming from a good place. Because the new us should be a greater reality than the, the old us, yes? Assume that it's coming from a good place. What if our first impulse was to trust the idea, the prompting, the leading, the dream, the vision that God has given us, rather than think that it's our ego getting away with murder? I'm not saying we uncritically treat every thought in our head like that, but when you're thinking and praying and dreaming and your desire is about do, you know, genuinely following God and doing what he wants you to do, maybe what if we stop thinking that those first impulses are bad ones and, and you know, our shadow side with some ulterior motive and start assuming that it's our new self thinking out the thoughts of God? What if we started with that? What if we stopped mistrusting our motives? What if we stopped mistrusting those promptings and those leadings that are formed in our heart? And finally, what if we really believed that God was for us? What if we just really believed that God was for us? It's Romans 8, 31, 32. Now I'm reading the message version. It says, so what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? The NIV just simply says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And again, I think a lot of us understand the theory of salvation through faith and grace, but most of us still live as if we have to earn God's favour, that we are not worthy of God's favour. And there's a whole lot that goes into this too, you know. So much of Christianity is so often defined by what it's against, you know, isn't it? God hates pretty much everyone and everything um, until you come over to his way of thinking. But even that's a travesty, you know, like John 3.16 begins with, for God so loved the world. Not for God so hated the world that he sent Jesus to, to, to die to teach it a lesson. You know, that's not how it works, is it? I mean, the, the motivation... For sending Jesus was love. Yes. To love someone means you've got to be for them, yeah? Even if they're not doing everything they should do, even if they're, they're making choices that don't please you, he's still for the world. He's for us. But some of us live like he's waiting for us to fail. That, that we haven't quite measured up. We haven't got enough credit in the God bank in order to do the things we need to do. We live under this kind of constant shadow all the time that, that you know, God's just never quite pleased with us. God is for you. God's your biggest fan. No, I'm not, and I don't mean to be flippant in that. God is your biggest fan. No one wants the best for you more than God. Did you know that? 
So he's not, he's not in heaven rubbing his hands gleefully, hopefully, hoping you're going to trip up or going, no, nah, you got that wrong. You know, imagine now, if you go back to that argument about the will of God. I've got four daughters, right? I've got every decision they're ever going to make written down in a book. But I don't give them access to the book. I'd be arrested. <laughs> Dad, I've made this decision. Is that the wrong one? You tell me. Now, I know it's all predicated on the idea that we have a relationship with God and we're seeking his will, but it's a little bit bent, isn't it, that God's got this itinerary for our life, but he doesn't let us in on it. You know? If we did that to our children, they would not be pleased, okay? So it's not like God is, is there going, you know, you just, you just aren't getting it, you haven't worked out what I want for your life, you're not good enough. It's, I, I am for you. And I'm for you. And those dreams and those visions and you have, he actually wants you to succeed in those things. Okay? He wants you to succeed in those things. There's a verse I I left out. I skipped over it. I'll come back to it. Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Right? That's not, oh, I delight in you, Lord. Now where's my Maserati? Right? (laughs) That's not how this works. He's not a genie, okay, where, you know, oh, I've delighted in you this week. Where's my stuff? You know, like, that's not how it works, all right? When it talks about God giving us the desires of our heart, the word means to form and to constitute, to set. When our life and when our desire, however imperfect it might be, is set on going, Lord, I just, I just want to live a life that brings you glory and pleases you and accomplishes your will. He sets the desires of our heart. That's how, again, we can confidently trust what's going on in us, that he sets the desires of our hearts. It is coming from him. And so he sets his, and he wants us to succeed in it because he is for us. He is for you. It doesn't matter if, you know, in the, in the course of a week, if I'm doing well or if I'm doing badly, that feeling towards me never shifts. You understand that, don't you? So if I'm knocking it out of the park with holiness, which is kind of like Monday to Wednesday thing for me because I've had a rest, and then Thursday to Friday, (laughs) Thursday to Friday I'm acting like a reprobate, he is still for me. Yeah? Do you know that God is for you? Do you know that he wants the best for you more than you want the best for you? Do you know that those dreams and visions and even desires that he has put in your heart Right? that he wants them for you more than you want them for you. He's not trying to withhold. He hasn't got it on a stick, so when you go to grab it, he pulls it away. <laughs> the imagery is really messing with your heads today, isn't it? Um, but I think, here's the thing, you know, there's, there's no one thing that has taught us to think like that. It's, it's a range of messages over time that have gone in to build up this idea or picture of God and us in relation to God that's just missing the mark. And until we know ourselves to be unconditionally and wholly loved and, and, and supported and affirmed by God, which we are, you know, we're going to balk at everything we do. And so maybe that's why I'm saying, so what if instead of, instead of worrying about getting it wrong, instead of doubting our motivations, instead of thinking, you know, why would God do this for me? Why don't we assume, of course he would do that for me because he is for me. Yeah? He is for me. Every good and perfect gift comes from who? The Father of lights. 
And if we, being imperfect, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more our Father in heaven, yeah? These are the things that Jesus says, and they kind of slip through to the keeper sometimes. Because again, we've been, you know, we kind of think we're getting ahead of ourselves, we're getting too big. No, we're grounding ourselves in what the word says about us. And the bottom line is God is for you, for you. Whether you're knocking it out of the park or not, whether you're feeling it or not, whether you feel like you've arrived or you're halfway, it doesn't matter. God is for you. That's the message I want you to understand. And as we take communion this morning, you know, think about that. If God didn't hold back from sending Jesus for us to demonstrate the fact that he not only loves us and he's for us, okay, why would he hold back on anything else? So as we take communion this morning, let that be a reminder that this in, in all that it accomplished as well, is also a sign to us and a reminder to us that, hey, whatever it is you're going through right now, I am for you. And if I didn't hold Jesus back, I'm not going to hold back when it comes to whatever it is you need right here and right now. Amen? So let's go and take, our, take communion. We'll get the team up. And then we'll finish. Thanks. <laughs>